some of the students were very surprised that they could find interesting people who uh, they might never have met any other way on social media. They could strike up conversations with them. They could follow them and get to know what these other people were thinking. And that also some of those other people were very interested in what the students were, were saying. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Well, today's guest is Amelia Ascari. She's a prize-winning environmental journalist, researcher, and lecturer at the University of Michigan, where she teaches science, health, and public policy reporting. She also teaches a bilingual virtual exchange course with colleagues in Bogota, Colombia, where students collaborate on journalistic projects. Previously, she was an environmental reporter at the Detroit Free Press, where assignments took her to places like a bear's den in northern Michigan and as far south as the isolated cliffs um, in Patagonia. Um, really great to have you. We just met recently this past week, and, and I wanted to chat with you about all the things that you're doing. And I, I, I think it would be great to maybe just start to have you talk a little bit about your professional career um, in environmental, you know, as an environmental reporter and all the great things that you did and how that sort of informed your switch into education. Okay, well, Ed, it's a pleasure to be talking with you here today. I um, uh, really admire the work that you're doing bridging journalism and education. Um, so I, um, you mentioned that I teach at the University of Michigan, and I like to tell my students that I have been so fortunate to experience two golden ages in my profession. Um, I am a fan of Sid Meier's Civ game. Um, and uh, the first golden age really was uh, the golden age of newspaper reporting. You know, I was an environment reporter and, an, and I also covered other topics for newspapers uh, at a moment where they were probably at peak employment in the United States and globally, and uh, where I was the environment reporter for the Detroit Free Press, and I got to travel all over the uh, the hemisphere, <laughs> you know, uh, and um, um, report about um, environmental issues, because of, which of course know no borders, right? And um, uh, I was fortunate to be based in Detroit, which is the home of the auto industry, which has global impact um, and uh, was the kind of the, the hub of innovation in its day uh, a century ago. It was the Silicon Valley of its day. So it has had enormous influence on the Industrial Revolution and uh, on, on the invention of the, um, of the uh, production line 
right, on the invention of labor unions um, and in, in the United States, the growth of those unions. So um, it's been a, a very interesting base to be a, a, a reporter, especially covering environment. And um, I, I tell my students that the second golden age in my career is what we're experiencing right now, an incredible moment of innovation related to information technology, where there, while there are not as many uh, job opportunities in the traditional news outlets as there were at the peak of the employment when I was traveling um, to Patagonia as in the Amazonian rainforest, as well as, well as the uh, bear dens in northern Michigan, as the reporter covering environment for the Detroit Free Press. Yet there are so many opportunities now to help shape the future of um, how we as a society uh, think about news and define news and gather and curate it and share it and understand it. And so I think it's uh, an equally wonderful time to be uh, working in this space. And I, I, I particularly uh, feel fortunate that I continue to be uh, really involved in um, working with environmental journalism because we are at a moment now where finally after decades of being sort of marginalized in newsrooms, uh, uh, the, the people covering environment news, um, we are now getting um, a lot more interest in climate change as an important story that many, many, if not most people recognize is going to be uh, a, a framing um um, reality for the rest of their lives, you know, that we're all going to be working on as a society at every level. So it's very important for uh, every community um, to have uh, a, a good grasp on that kind of news. And uh, I just think there's lots of opportunity and, and, and really interesting work in this area. Why, why do you think it's been such a challenge uh, for journalists to convey uh, just the severity of of what lies ahead uh, as it relates to climate change. Um, you know, there still seems to be this disconnect, particularly in, I guess, um, more conservative communities about, um, you know, just denying what every year, you know, we see the wildfires, we see the, you know, the hurricanes and, and the devastation, but still there seems to be this disconnect with, with the, significantly large part of the population and and also politicians you know that's a very interesting question uh ed um throughout my career i've been involved with the society of environmental journalists which uh is an organization that represents um uh, the public's uh, uh, the, the mission is to promote public understanding of environment issues through journalism. So it, it, it's a professional organization for environmental journalists. And I can tell you that through the 30 plus year history of this organization, we've been struggling with that question that you just asked. Um, how do we help people understand the impact of this uh, uh, very important trend of climate changing um, when it's really not a classic news story. It, you know, um, it's uh, news organizations are much better 
at covering events that happen on a, a today basis or even a this week basis. Like um, classically, if you in the past looked at the front page of an American newspaper, there would be stories about things government did today. There'd be stories about that came out of the courts or the police system. Way too many of those stories, in my view. There uh, would have been um, um, uh, some feature stories about people, fun, interesting people doing interesting things around the community. But it was very hard to get attention for climate change is it's such a story that oozes. There's a very uh, few events that are happening today that can be definitively uh, declared as related to climate change. Even, you know, in aggregate, we can look at all the uh, unusual weather events, but um, but even one any one particular fire or storm um, you can mention climate change now um, and say that it's part of this, it's, uh, experts believe it's part of this trend, but it's not like um, a very hard fact that you can um, declare uh, with uh, certainty in any one particular case. Mm -hmm. so, so it's always been a challenge, but I think now that pe many people are experiencing to the change in the weather. They are just like, there's a difference of course between weather and climate, but the even the weather is <laughs> becoming um, that people experience it over seasons. Uh, people are seeing a change. And, uh, and so, and so these changes are following the predictions to, like the climate scientists um, more or less told us uh, to expect. Um, and, um, um, and so now it's easier to direct um, more attention to these stories, but they're still pretty challenging because uh, they're technical. They involve, um, um, they don't involve usually a storyline where there's a clear one villain um, or somebody doing something wrong. So they're, they're more complex to tell. Um, and there is, certainly a lot of um, money, uh, public relations money being poured into this topic and uh, trying to influence public understanding and public conversation about this topic. And there, there's uh, perhaps an effort to get people to feel personal responsibility, which is, a, I believe, a good thing, but yet also um, that shouldn't be at the expense of also looking at the bigger players and their responsibilities as well. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about the work that you're doing with students and particularly younger students. Um, and, you know, it, it, this, this whole issue of, of uh, climate science and, and weather everything reminds me of the 60s and 70s, where it was really young people that opened the public's eyes, um, you know, just about concerns about uh, nuclear war and, uh, you know, the war in Vietnam and civil rights and and it occurs to me um, that it may be student journalists, you know, who are going to certainly open the eyes of their generation, but maybe even their elders about these concerns. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Do you have a, a well? The work. So tell me about the work you've done. You've been doing in Flint, Michigan. Absolutely. So. Um, 
So in Flint, I've done some work with a terrific um, language arts teacher at a, at a public high school. Um, and the, I, I won't uh, identify her or the school right here because uh, it's academic research and the custom and academic research is to protect the identities uh, uh, or anything that could publicly identify, especially the students who were the focus of our, our, our collaborative research project. But her students, um, uh, I did some, some research with her and her students looking at understanding of this concept called the fifth estate. Um, and um, basically uh, this is a concept that um, social media companies like Facebook, like uh, Facebook CEO, Mike Zucker, Mark Zuckerberg um, have been mentioning in their testimony before Congress um, in the past. Uh, and it's an idea that uh, basically that um, we have three branches of government, the executive or branch with the people like the president, uh, the judicial branch and the legislative branch. On top of that, people have spoken of journalism institutions as the fourth estate, a group that uh, holds the other parts of government, the parts of government accountable. And now the fifth estate is all of us every person in the world um, <clears throat> using their communication information technology devices like their phones um, uh, to communicate their version of uh, reality to the rest of the world. So, um, <clears throat> so the fifth estate is a concept where uh, promoted by a researcher at um, Oxford University in England, Bill Dunham. And he is um, encouraging people to use this power to communicate with anyone anywhere in a civic way, to try and raise uh, uh, voices that haven't been heard in traditional um, conversations uh, about civic issues. So my work with those students and their teacher in Flint was about raising their voices on social media in a um, responsible way, looking at for civic interactions and looking to develop their understanding of um, how to uh, bring attention to civic issues that were important to them from their perspective as young people in Flint, which of course is famous for its um, drinking water problems. And what did you discover in this research in terms of the the kids' uh, sense of agency and, uh, and you know, what did you discover? Well, uh, one of some of the conclusions of our research project, we, we um, create this teacher created a class, class accounts on uh, several social media platforms and uh, taught the students um, some principles around posting and and finding information that was credible on social media and elsewhere and sharing that information on civic issues that was credible. And uh, we learned that this exercise really opened the eyes of the students to possibilities uh, about using social media in civic productive ways, you know, beyond um, 
just uh, communicating with their friends or looking for things that had to do with celebrities or fashion or other topics, music that they were already um, spending a lot of time, um, you, you know, on so- social media discussing. It was, it was not like um, leading them to something that they were, compl- it was a complete unknown to them. It was a, already a large part of the lives of most of these students. And um, we um, encourage them to use it in civic ways. And, and uh, some of the students were very surprised that they could find interesting people who uh, they might never have met any other way on social media. They could strike up conversations with them. They could follow them and get to know what these other people were thinking. And that also some of those other people were very interested in what the students were were saying. So that, that was that was the research project and some of the conclusions there. Mm-hmm. You also did a, um, a news innovation project um, in Dearborn, I believe, with middle school students, right? Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, um, uh, I did a, an earlier project with a, a middle school uh, journalism teacher in Dearborn, Michigan. It's uh, a city that's known for, for having a very large Arab American population. So this school had um, uh, a, a very high percentage of Arab American students. So they had a very a, a different perspective than the Flint students did, um, uh, which. Um, Flint is a city uh, that is um, a larger Black population and um, a, a pretty substantial Hispanic population as well, and some uh, white um, residents as well, non-Hispanic white residents as well. So Dearborn, almost exclusively Arab American, so especially at this school. So in Dearborn, um, we invited the students to uh, explore problems related to information uh, that was civic in nature and try to imagine solutions to innovate, um, come up with some ideas that would help solve these problems. And that was a class assignment for um, middle schoolers there um, in that school. And it was um, uh, a very empowering and interesting project, um, I think, for for those students and also for the teacher and for me. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, our work started with sixth graders in rural Oregon, and I think people underestimate, um, you know, just the capabilities and and level of um, engagement that middle school students uh, can have to entertain some of these issues. I'm very curious about the work that you're doing in uh, Bogota. Um, tell me about that. Um, okay. Well, to clarify, I have never been to Bogota. <laughs> I'm doing the work in collaboration Virtually. with colleagues, right, who are in Bogota. And right. um, and so it's a virtual exchange course. And I'll tell you the story of how this course um, came to be. Uh, it, over the years, uh, the university where I, I teach, the University of Michigan, has um, a, a terrific center for research on teaching and learning. And this center hosts every year a kind of a one-day, uh, one-week conference on our campus right at the end of the the um, the winter term in in May, uh, where they 
just invite people to make presentations related to teaching and invite everybody to come and sort of polish up their teaching skills. So I'm a huge fan of this conference uh, because I've always been interested in innovating myself in different ways, um, especially related to teaching. And so um, I attended numerous events uh, that were hosted at this conference by a tiny part of our university called the Virtual Exchange Initiative. They, they were promoting people, uh, professors connecting with colleagues in other countries in digital spaces and uh, doing some collaborative teaching. Now, most of their examples were language courses where language learning itself was um, part of the, a major focus of the coursework. Um, but yet I went to these conferences, uh, these sessions at the conference, because I was interested in it. Then the pandemic hit, all study abroad programs were canceled. And, um, and the virtual exchange people got uh, suddenly got the spotlight on them from the provost's office. And then they turned around and said, like, who has shown interest? Who, uh, who how can we beef this up during the pandemic? And they reached out to me and said, hey, you've you've kind of been a fangirl of our presentations. <laughs> Are you interested in actually doing a virtual exchange course? And I said, yes, count me in, fascinating. And so they um, have a network of people who manage virtual exchanges at other universities. And they sort of uh, sent up a flare uh, saying, hey, environmental journalist over here wants to do a, a virtual exchange course. Who is interested? And the people in Bogota responded, not the people I actually wound up working with, but their administrators said, we, do, we teach journalism. We've got people interested in environment. Colombia is um, a fascinating country, one of the most biodiverse countries in the world, um, a, a um, place with... Um, a tremendous importance in terms of um, um, its environment, tremendous contributor to uh, the, the world's coal supply as well. Um, so so uh, through these connections, I met these people from, who teach journalism and they were interested in teaching potentially around environment. They uh, wound up visiting my course that I have been teaching for many years for uh, one term. And then after we got to know each other, we said, okay, let's propose a joint course. And so we've taught that joint course for two years. It's taught entirely in digital spaces. Uh, we use Google Meet because it seems to be a more neutral platform uh, than uh, some of the other video conferencing um, platforms. It uh, also Google offers a translation feature that's pretty magical, though not perfect. It will translate comments. It will translate the transcript of the meeting as you're going along. Um, again, very rough, but still helpful. Exciting. What are you learning from from uh, from this work, this particular work? Oh, I'm learning so much. Uh, first, all, uh, uh, we are teaching in a. Um, in a mixture of Spanish and English. So I'm improving my Spanish a lot. Um, I'm also like, uh, I, I went and found a um, Spanish tutor from Colombia online through one of these many services that you can just go Google. My The service I'm using is called Preply. Um, so I'm, I'm literally studying Spanish on the side and learning a lot. 
Uh, and it's terrific that I found somebody from Colombia because I'm also learning a lot about Colombian culture, Colombian environment, Colombian media systems, government systems, um, both through the tutor and of course, through the work with the students and the professors in Colombia. And then of course, we're, uh, we decided that our course should lean on the spoken word because um, we are gonna be working in a mixture of Spanish and English and we don't wanna, um, we don't wanna uh, forefront things like spelling and, and um, you know, verb conjugation and all of that. So um, we decided to focus on podcasting and spoken um, interviews and weaving them together. Uh, so I'm, I'm learning um, about podcasting and about um, about um, the difficulty of lining up people to interview uh, across international borders and all of that kind of thing. Yeah, you know it's funny. Uh, Colombia is uh, is one of the places I'm I'm contemplating taking students in the next year. Uh, several colleagues and I over the years, to every other year, we we pick a place and. You know, taking students to Vietnam, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, let's see, New Zealand, um, and uh, we also have a study abroad program in Ghana, West Africa, that's been going for almost 15 years. But but Colombia is so fascinating, um, and uh, maybe you know, maybe, maybe you will go. You know, right. Maybe we can take students there together. Right. <laughs> that would yeah. be pretty. That would be fascinating. And that has <laughs> a, the idea of taking students there absolutely has crossed my mind. But it's an yeah. expensive, a little bit of an expensive prospect for yes, the students. Like one of yes, the appeals of these virtual programs is that the cost is very low. Um, so it, it's a little more egalitarian, you know, um, sure. So, well, I just, um, it's been a delight to talk with you. Thank you so much for, uh, for spending time with us today. And I, I do want to, um, offline chat about some potential opportunities to collaborate and the work that you're doing. Uh, um, and, uh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. I, I look forward to further conversation. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com. <laughs>